Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller, sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly. Hey, hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian? We've got another episode of Your Questions, Our Answers today, so we love uh, getting these in. Please do continue to send them in, and we'll uh, consolidate these and package them up for an episode uh, every so often. So uh, thanks for the feedback. Thanks for the continued questions, and uh, let's jump into it, Bobby. Let's do it. All right, so the first question we've got here is uh, how do I know if I'm cut out for sales or not? And we'll approach this from a couple different angles. The person that asked this question is actually already in enterprise uh, tech sales today. So, uh, which is, it's a completely different uh, approach, I think, than somebody that's looking to get into tech sales. Um, and Bobby, I think we've all, uh, if you've been into tech sales for any number of years, uh, you've all, you've asked the question, am I cut out for this or not? Because it can be a very stressful endeavor. It's, it's very rewarding, of course, but it can be a very stressful uh, gig. And, uh, you know, you got the, this is saying that you always start over at zero again when the new uh, fiscal year kicks off, or in some case, every month or quarter kicks off, you start back at zero again. And it's a very tough grind. Bobby, has that ever crossed your mind when you were uh, tech sales? Well, I'm, I, I might have been, I might know that I'm cut out for it, but there's days I don't like it and I, I want an excuse to get out or I've wanted an excuse to get out. And I think the large majority of people in the world, I, I would think there's some statistics on this somewhere we should probably know, but I bet it's less than 50%. I mean, there's just not, it's just not, everyone's just not cut out for it. I think that uh, if you need constant reassurance that you're doing good work that they might not be the right job right the uh if you're part of the uh must receive a participation ribbon era it's going to be harder because that's just not what you're going to get in this world you're rewarded based on performance and and numbers and um i've talked to a lot of people in the last six months that are struggling with the fact that they're not getting to the bar they they set or their company set and it's tough right now it's probably one of the hardest times ever to be in tech sales. Yeah, this this year certainly exacerbates it over any other given year. I remember it I was at Microsoft in 2008-2009 when the uh, financial collapse happened and it was the first year I'd ever seen a year over year quota reduction. I've never seen it since and that was the only year I ever saw it. Um because uh, those these times happen uh hopefully uh infrequently, hopefully it is every 12 years or so, but uh, these, these years certainly exacerbate it. Um, I was thinking, Bobby, of just a few skills that you may re- self-reflect, and maybe these are things that you could uh, look to improve on professionally, uh, or maybe these are just things you're not good at, and maybe you're not cut out for it. Maybe something a little bit less stressful, maybe managing existing customers' uh, satisfaction. You know, the, the CSM role has become a really popular one, customer success managers, which are kind of non-quoted customer relationship managers is, is what I've seen some people that have just decided, you know what, sales is not for me. Uh, so let's talk about a couple of skills that uh, I think are super critical. Um, the first one is, can you manage structure uh, or lack of structure and deal with ambiguity? Um, this is a crucial, crucial skill because I always like to say there's probably a hundred ways to do a sales job and it, probably 50 of them are the right way. Maybe it's more than that, but 
you, you can do the job right a whole lot of ways and you can do the job wrong a whole lot of ways. And no one's going to give you the exact guidebook or path to get to a decision maker, to, to find a prospect, to find a deal. They're going to, of course, every company is going to have a, a structured process in which they want you to help customers evaluate your wares, whatever you're selling. Um, but if you can't deal with ambiguity and you can't wake up on a Monday morning or a Wednesday at two o'clock after lunch and say, this is what I need to do next. This is my priority. I, I am going to to force structure on my day. If you can't do that skill, you're really going to struggle in this, in this career path. No doubt. I think that, um, along with that comes the, uh, self-motivation, right? Cause you, you, while you have, you might have a structured playbook from your company. It's, it's a very different profession where your manager might not talk to you for 10 days, maybe two weeks. Right. And you've got this playbook and you've got, you got some accounts and it's kind of like all up to you and whether you're motivated or not, whether you're self-initiated or not, that's a big piece of it. But what I find is people kind of, they just struggle with what to work on next, right? And where to focus their time and effort. So forget the ambiguity in a, in a particular deal or, or whether I'm uh, following my team's plan or I'm creating my own and talented enough to do that. It really is about just getting up and making phone calls, um, reaching out to people and, and knowing that you're going to work on some sales activity. And that's where I think people get wrapped around doing things and they think planning is selling and I could go on and on, but it truly is the ambiguity is not just about the deal or what you're going to work on. It's about like the whole week and the month and the quarter and the year. You really have to be self-sufficient or you're going to flounder. There's no question. And you, and the best salespeople can iterate on what works and doesn't work. You won't make the right decision the first time. And if you did, you're lucky or you're just really smart and congratulations, but you're going to struggle. You're going to miss, you're going to run an engagement wrong. And if you don't reflect back at the way you ran a deal, even as a veteran sales back, you don't veteran sales rep. If you don't reflect back and say, I could have done that better. I failed on that engagement and that's a deal we could have won or I didn't structure that week properly last week. If you can't self-reflect and then make adjustments, you'll, you'll not succeed in this job. Uh, I think the second factor to consider is, are you a good leader? Are you somebody that inspires and motivates people? That's not just for managing people. It's your, you know, if you're running a complex sales cycle, um, or even an uncomplex sales cycle, you're dealing with other people, whether it's internally and certainly the customers that you're working with, you need to be able to inspire the best out of people. We've all had uh, supporting teammates show up to calls unprepared, not understanding the agenda, and not doing the, their best in your pursuit. And that's a reflection on you, not them, because you did not get them prepared. Now, if you did get them prepared and they did fail, they're either not cut out for the job or they need to get, have feedback back to their you know, management. You need to make some changes that way. But to, to be good at this, to be cut out at this, you need to reflect and say, am I somebody that can lead and inspire the teammates around me? Am I organized enough? Am I confident enough? Do I understand what I'm doing enough to inspire and motivate those people around me? The, the thing that jumps out in my brain is kind of those two together, the ambiguity and the leadership stuff. 
those things don't happen by attending a class somewhere, like going to a college course or reading a book. And I, I think when I made the transition from being a technologist into a technology seller, I struggled with that. I thought I had tons of experience. I thought I had, you know, I'd been on so many sales calls as the engineer or the technical person that truly the experience has to be gained. Uh, and we talk about it bats all the time, but the only way you're going to learn how to fix the ambiguity and where to work next is to, to get, get a loss here and there and get kicked in the gut a couple times and be told no and re work on a deal that was dead for six months and realize that you reflected and said, Oh, I was working on a dead deal that whole time. That'll clear up that ambiguity. And then the, the, the meeting is unfortunately, and, and what I think companies struggle with, with cycling through sales reps is the, the reps that don't own it and don't have the experience and just team members that keep showing up to meetings unprepared and customers are deflated. It's what's killing the, the quote unquote tech sales role because quite honestly, some customers can find better information on Google than the teams that are coming to the meeting have put the effort into getting the information out of Google. So it's experience. Uh, those two things kind of come together into the experience bucket, but um, Brian's right. You have to be able to cut through the ambiguity and get, get stuff done. And then you have to be able to lead a group of people that don't directly report to you. You're never going to be given a badge of you're the sh sales sheriff. Everybody reports to you. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to to lead a team that doesn't work for you. Yeah, Bobby, you touched on it, but being an expert was the third thing I was going to mention. You have to you have to be a expert. Customers expect you. They have already done that research. We've all seen the stat that they've researched your company on Google and have done their homework on your business. You have to bring something to the table. You have to be willing to put in the hours to take the training to uh, to understand how you know, to be able to go really deep into your product, uh, because the fact is they can find more out on Google and they know more about their problems than, you know, and if they can get a lot of those questions answered off Google, what do you bring into the table? What depth do you have? I always think back to the, the point we, this is an episode a couple of years ago where you would talk about how you, uh, when you were, I think getting up to speed on the windows server unit or whatever, you'd print off the white papers and lay in bed and read, read that stuff to become an expert. And that was a big differentiator for you early in your career. And for me, it was a big differentiator to be a expert on what was called the enterprise cow back in the day. I just, I knew it really well. I understood licensing inside and out. And I was an expert to my prospects, which made me a, a, a desired commodity. It is, it is something that very few people bring to the table anymore. They want to, I don't know, pitch their wares and, um, Quite often, I still hear people as they as I mock interview them or mock mock work with them in sales coaching opportunities. They 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 really are still just saying, "How much do you want to buy?" Like they they are assuming that you're going, you know, they got to the table, so you're going to buy it, and it's so short sighted that they can't look at the customer's perspective and 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 work back to solve that problem to sell something. Yep. All right. Number two, uh, second question we got here is uh, how to become a better or how do I become a better negotiator? And uh, this we get asked this one a whole lot. And I've, I've kind of dodged this one a little bit. And I, and I got to thinking, like, why? Why do I keep dodging this question? And I think it's just every pursuit is so different. Um, but then I thought, well, what would, would be like kind of a common tactic or thing that people could think through when they're looking to become a better negotiator. 
And what kept coming to mind was that you've got to gain leverage. And leverage is, it relates to kind of two factors. One, how much party, how much each party needs that deal relative to the other. And the second is the relative value of each party's best alternative to that deal. And so, so the reason I bring that up and define it is because so often uh, I, I'll get a call and somebody will say, hey, can you help me? I'm trying to negotiate this. And, and really, when they lay the scenario out for me, the customer has 100% of the leverage and they have 0% of the leverage. And they're struggling to find what that leverage point is, which means you're really not negotiating. That person's just taking from you. And maybe you're okay with that, them taking from you, uh, because it's, you know, it's the balance of trade is decent. But, um, but oftentimes they lack any leverage at all. The customer sees their service or, or software or hardware as, as, as a pure commodity. So if they don't get the price point down or, or whatever it is they're trying to sell, they're just going to go to the next alternative. Um, so... That's what I, I would say, Bobby. That's what really you would consider negotiation power. It's how much each party needs that deal relative to the other, and the relative value of each party's best alternative to the offer. If they've got a great Plan B that's ten dollars cheaper, they're going to go that direction. What I see a lot in in these conversations, and it's one I get asked about quite a bit, like whether it's pricing strategy, whether it's it's all about negotiating. It's all about winning the deal and, and, and probably, like you said, gaining some leverage. The mistakes aren't made in the final stages of the deal. The mistakes are made up front in the beginning of the deal. And I know we've talked about some of these things and, and reviewed books on negotiation. So go back and listen to some of that content. But if you're if you're in the early stages of a deal and you give in to the customer early on, they know you're gonna give in to them later on as well. So you have to be a professional and create an evaluation plan that, that guides the customer on how you're gonna work, which will set the precedence for how you're gonna negotiate. And I find it as simple as creating a few to-dos, like we've talked about, that the customer owes you something, you owe the customer something, even after the first sales meeting. And you do your thing and you're excited because the deal's moving forward, but the customer never does their thing. Like that's the first point you can kind of start to set some leverage and say, hey, you want another meeting or another demo, but you you said you were going to have legal review this MSA and we're not even talking about that. Let's get that legal review of MSA done and then we'll do the demo. You've you've got to kind of keep holding things back. And it's scary as hell for customers or sorry, sellers that are dealing with customers especially in times like this, but I have seen my coaching students have some aha moments where they held a customer accountable, got back a little bit of leverage, said no to the pricing request that came through and saw the pendulum of leverage switch and the deal got done or deals got done. Um, I think that that's where the, the most of the reps I see fail early on and throughout and can't get to know and so, like you said, Brian, they're just going to keep getting taken from until something changes and the customer's not going to quit asking until you get to know. And, and I, to your, the point you made earlier is spot on that it, this all starts at the beginning. You, you talked about the evaluation plan and there's gives and take and you're, you're working on a professional relationship here and you have to express that early. They have to know that they're working with a professional. And and of course, you're going to give them access to the information they need and help them with that evaluation. 
but along the way, either through discovery or you know formal discovery or informal discovery, you've got to be understanding what's important to them. Why are they making this change? And all that needs to factor into what eventually kind of becomes that final proposal or those early discussions. If if you can't, in a couple of sentences, outline exactly what's important to to them and while and why your product uniquely solves that challenge. If that's not something you can answer very quickly and easily, you you probably don't have very much leverage. So you need to be working on that throughout and understand how your solution is differentiated to the other. And you have to validate with validate with them as well. So many people just they'll spit out the company line, but they're not validating with the customer that like this does uniquely solve their issues. Yeah, and one last thing I'll add to this point about negotiation is if if you don't negotiate in your personal life, then you're probably not going to be a very good negotiator as a sales rep. And I don't remember what book it was. It might have been um, the the Herb book that I've talked about so many times, but I can't think of the name right now, where I think in the first couple of chapters it says, and it was written a long time ago, so some of you may not know this company, but it said if you go to Sears and you're going to buy a washing machine or a refrigerator, ask them for 10% off and see what happens. Like, yes, they have a price that's on it, but – You'd be surprised the manager would come over and probably try to move a refrigerator for and give you some money off on that refrigerator. Even though it's a corporate business, they have the ability to do that. Um, maybe you are at Home Depot or Lowe's and you see something you want and one's got a scratch on it. Ask to speak to the manager and see if you can't get something off on that one. You would be surprised that they can negotiate just like anything else um, and you don't necessarily have to pay full fare. I don't think you're going to be able to go to McDonald's and buy Happy Meal for 12 cents less than you normally would. But I think on big ticket items, there's always a point of negotiation still left on the table. And if you don't try that and get uncomfortable in in those situations that are non-threatening, then you're never going to be able to get to an uncomfortable point when it is your commission check and it is a little bit more threatening. Another thing I'd add here too is, there, you know, let's say – one or two out of every 10 deals you do, you're working with someone that's kind of expressed like this is the direction we want to go, you know, which is obviously a great place to be. Like, you know that you're you're selected and they're going to go down that path. But it's important in those scenarios to downplay your leverage a little bit. So some sometimes you'll I'll see AEs um, get aggressive and not give anything in those scenarios because they know they already want it. Have a good list of what gives you have that that impact the commercial terms and the non-commercial terms and make sure that you give some, whether it's, you know, if you don't want to give any more on price, fine. But if it, you know, it's going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. If they have expressed to you and kind of expose themselves a little bit to say, look, we're going to go your direction. If you don't give them anything again, you don't have to give on price, but look for other non-commercial terms that may um, give them a, a win on their side. Like it. Uh, next is how do I say no to a prospect? And um, again, this is we can kind of take this a couple of different directions. We've all had the prospects that were thinking, man, like this is not going to be, they're not going to be a good fit for us. Uh, the way they're evaluating this is is wrong. It doesn't line up well for us to be successful. Um, and my my answer to this every single time is force an engagement plan. Uh, so, Bobby, you talked on the last question. You talked about 
being really defining a process up front and asking them to do things. If, if it's if you don't want to work with them, we're going to assume because we, it's a bad it's a bad evaluation that they're trying to force upon you. You've got to turn around and force an engagement plan on you and say, "I will do these things, but you have to do these things." And if the answer is no, it's no. There's a deal I, I did in Houston uh, four years ago, five years ago, to where they they straight up wouldn't even review our NDA. Like, period. Would not review our NDA. And they had a one-sided NDA. And I, my answer to them was like, do you not care about our intellectual property at all? Like, and I said it nicely, of course, but mm. it was a one-sided NDA. They wouldn't look at ours. And I, I said, I, I just I just don't even know how we, how this, we're at day one of our relationship. How is this going to look at day 90 of our relationship if we can't get past this? And the answer was no. Like, I, I will happily sign a bi-directional NDA, but if you won't even consider the value of our intellectual property. We're at a, we're a non-starter at this mm-hmm. point. I didn't go back to our attorneys and say, Oh, it's a great prospect. Can we just do it for this one prospect? You know, it's, 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 it's wrong. And that was me saying no to them and smash cut to six months later, they're a big and growing customer and, and still remain a great customer at workday. But, um, you got to say no, you got to force an engagement plan. It's critical. What are some, what are some big parts of the evaluation plan, Bobby, that you, always made sure that you had uh, layered in. Well, I think the, the, the learning to say no took obviously watering a lot of dead plants, right? Working those deals and, and finding that I was not in control and that I had no leverage. And, you know, for, for the reps out there that don't say no, I would say literally just practice saying no um, amongst your team, amongst your manager. There's, there's things you can practice on and there's things that you probably shouldn't practice on, but, Try to practice on saying no to people on things. Uh, try to say no to the next happy hour or something that's non again threatening. But in the evaluation plan, I I think Brian, and it's not what I did ten years ago, fifteen years ago. But today, I can be extremely patient when I send an email and I put the timeline in the in the customer's court because I know I'm valuable now. I know what I'm doing brings value, and I know that the solution that I'm helping a customer with is going to save them money and bring them value. Um, and just as recent as this week, we, we've, we've been working to get into a prospect and talk to them. And I kind of just time bounded my next interaction and said, after that, I'm going to say goodbye and move on. And some of the people around me were kind of shocked and didn't know what to do and thought, wow, I think we really want to work with them still, don't we? And of course we do. But I mean, if they're not going to engage, do we really want to work with them? So oddly enough, uh, there were three somewhat executive or director level type people and all three responded before my deadline and didn't want to lose the chance to be able to work with us. And we've, we've since had a call with one of them. And I think that just shows that people read your emails and if they don't respond, they're choosing not to respond. Um, and you have to find a way to get that leverage back. Like I have things to work on and I'm not being rude. I'm not, not wanting to work with that customer, but I'm going to prioritize and say, here's my, here's my credo. If you want to work with us, we're happy to do it, but I am also busy and going to move on. And, and most people that don't have that experience of chasing that person, chasing that person, chasing that person for six months to get no revenue and you look back behind you and think, oh, my God, I spent 20 hours of my time trying to chase them. You get real thick skinned on saying, okay, it's it's now or never and being able to do that. So 
I don't want to sound cocky, but I'm pretty strict on every stage of an evaluation plan that we were to agree to. And the final point on that is that we had to have like agreed to it. Like they said they wanted to talk to us and they, they didn't respond to the first five requests of us trying to talk to them. So it's, it's pretty easy that if you really agreed to talk and they aren't being responsive, you can say, Hey, we agreed to talk. You, you definitely got busy. No harm, no foul. Um, if we don't hear from you by next Wednesday, we're going to wrap it up and we'll still be here when you want to reach out, but we will stop chasing you down. And that just kind of sets, sets the first little piece of leverage that you can go back to and say, they know they can't just string me along. And that's a powerful feeling when you have that experience that gives you the power to, to walk away from something like that. Because what will happen is if they have a need, they're not going to let you walk away. And then I, I think the, um, I think what people forget a lot of times too is they'll lay out a really powerful evaluation plan too and they'll expect the customer to say no. Well, sometimes they say yes, like we'll follow all your rules. And the way the way I always put it is like now they've handed you the keys, you better be able to drive the car. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, if you say I want an hour with an executive at their company thinking that they're going to say no to that and you're going to be able to cut loose on this evaluation and they say Heck yeah, you can. We'll we'll set up the meeting. You can talk to our COO. You better come prepared with a dang good agenda for that COO, and not because they've just handed you the car keys. You better be ready to drive that car. Yep. And that'll happen. the The better you get, the more experience you have, the more that that'll start falling into place. And that's why the great are great because they've got that 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 tenure. They've got that experience, and they can run that meeting as well. Okay, let's hit one more, Bobby, and then we'll wrap it up. All right. Um, how do I prevent a sales call from getting hijacked uh, when a VP is on the line? I think we've all had this happen to where you have an executive sponsor at the company. You're going to introduce them into your clients and maybe, maybe it's executive to executive. And uh, you want to make sure that uh, you don't get kind of pushed outside of the call. Um, we, you know, we, we do this a lot at Workday where we'll have executive to executive conversations. It's kind of really a trade. It's showing executive alignment. We know if we have a real deal or not. It's a you know, obviously it can be a great way to, to manage opportunities. Um, the best way I've seen this go well is having a prep call with that VP internally ahead of the call and being really clear, really, really clear as to what you want to achieve from that call. What do you want to get out of it? How will it further the pursuit forward? And then I go as so far as to saying to, to like, what, who's going to kick off the call? Who's going to, are we going to do introductions? Am I going to say your title? Are you going to say your title? Being very specific. And then if you use Slack or, you know, however you communicate in real time during that call, lay the agenda out in that call. And I don't mean just the agenda, like, you know, introduce, you know, introduce the executives, talk about commercials. I mean, like 20 bullet items. Now expect that it's, it's going to turn more natural but if you aren't specific to that VP, they're just going to expect that you want them to take over the call and hijack the call. And sometimes you're just not going to be able to control it because they are who they are. And it's, it, you know, it's either been successful or unsuccessful. You're about to find out. But the more specific you can be with that agenda and what you want to get out of the call uh, to move the evaluation forward, uh, the better off you're going to be. Yeah, all along the same lines, uh, but a little bit of a different twist. I, I would always suggest that you have a specific ask. Like, hey, here's exactly what I need you to accomplish for me. 
And here's the way I would prefer that you help me accomplish this, right? Sit back, listen, see if I've made any mistakes, see if they've said anything that maybe you don't see in my notes in CRM, blah, blah. You know, guide guide them to keeping their mouth shut if that's what you're really looking for, but also have a specific ask. Normally it is, look, if you believe it's a real deal and we're down to it and, the, and their executive is saying, look, we're five points off, you help me decide whether it's worth that five points for us to go in and do the deal. We'll we'll win together. Or we'll lose together. But but the executives want to help. Um, I've never met an executive, maybe one, that just wanted to be a bull in a china cabinet. Um, and I would say, if that's what they want, then help guide them because their their preview or view of this whole thing is this is my one interaction with this customer. I got to get everything out that I think mm. is important to them or I'm never going to talk to them again. And that's a very different view than you and your partner probably have on this customer. You're going to come back, lose, win, whatever. You're going to be back dealing with them. So let the let the exec know what the, the ask is and how best to help you accomplish that ask. And then give them some guidance that won't hurt the deal. Um to the point where I've had execs where I said, look, if you ask for this business, we will lose. You can't ask for the business. But yes. we, we have yes. to we have to validate that, that we're doing this. If you offer another discount, they're just going to say, I, I, I can't talk to you about my real pains because you're just talking about pricing. Um, these aren't the problems that I need you to help me solve, and you can have that conversation. Um, if you talk about this product line versus this other product line, it's going to go bad. We've had this over and over, and then I think execs mostly will listen to that, and they want to be beneficial. Um, but as Brian said, you're about to find out whether they can work with a team or not <laughs> as well. Yes. Yeah, you'll you'll start to build a list of who you want part of your deals. What I always suggest the guys do is, uh, or the AEs do, is put together a list of all the commercial gives that you have and non-commercial gives that you have and executives that can influence deals. And those those three things together can be a really powerful way for you to move your to move your deals forward. Yeah, and, and just to add one more thing to your point, Bobby, is uh, I always lay out to the executive what the emotional tone of the customer is. They're they're passive, they're aggressive, they're they're in Houston, um, and this is their personality type. They're in New York, but this is their personality type. I try to give as much background as possible because I want to influence the way the executive interacts with them as well. A good self-aware executive will match the, the, the tone of the conversation. They'll be able to pick it up quickly, but if I can prepare them for that, they'll be even more prepared on the call. No doubt. All right, Bobby, with that, we'll wrap it up. Thanks again for your questions. Please continue to send them in. These are great, uh, and we'll do this again. Uh, don't be average. Average sucks. Average is the enemy. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week, average is the enemy.